are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is Corbin Smith, your host for Locked On Seahawks. Joining me as always, my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. Glad to have you on board as we continue with our off-season programming. We've got tons of great stuff coming up looking at free agency. Eventually, we'll get to the NFL draft. We've got a new segment we're going to be rolling out each Monday that we're going to start today. And, of course, continue our postseason awards looking at Offensive Lineman of the Year. Going to be a jam-packed episode, as always. Thanks for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. Now for your lead story here on Locked On Seahawks. The Seahawks didn't play this past weekend. We're not one of the teams that qualified for the postseason. But I think a strong argument can be made that we just witnessed the greatest divisional round weekend in NFL history. And Rob, you can debate with me on that if you'd like. But All four games this weekend went down to the wire. You had Tom Brady storming back from a 27-3 deficit to tie the game up against the Rams, only for the Rams and Cooper Cup to turn them away inside the final minute and hang on for the road win. 49ers stunned the Packers in the snow at Lambeau Field, hold Aaron Rodgers to just 10 points in the entire game. Unthinkable. And then you've got the Titans getting held off by the Bengals in a more low-scoring game. I think either one of us could have anticipated. And, then of course, there's there's those three good, really good games, and then there was the Bills-Chiefs, which I think was the greatest playoff game that I've ever watched. When it ended, it was just sadness. I couldn't believe it was over. I just I didn't want to stop watching such an exciting weekend of games and tons of drama late in regulation in all four contests. Absolutely unbelievable divisional round in the NFL playoffs, Corbin. This is why we watch football. I mean, my goodness, it was as good as it got. I mean, uh, you know, from a statistical standpoint, from a point standpoint, it was the greatest weekend of NFL playoff football in history. Just in in terms of the number of uh, point differential between the winners and the losers. You know, of course, the, the final game winds up going into overtime. The three previous games, uh, you know, both both the two divisional playoff games on Saturday as well as the early playoff game on Sunday, both all, all three of them went to the, the the final play of regulation where the opposing team, the one on the road, kicked the game-winning field goal and broke the hearts of all those fans who had crowded into those stadiums. So from an entertainment standpoint, couldn't have been any better than it was. And then as you just said, with arguing that the, the very last game between the visiting Buffalo Bills and the homebound Kansas City Chiefs, you know, I, I think that that was the best game, um, you know, from a quarterback perspective I've ever seen. I don't care yeah. if it's playoffs. I don't care if it's Super Bowl. I don't care if it's regular season. I would argue the greatest game I've ever seen, Corbin, just to kind of go back and reminisce for a little bit, was way back when I was like 19 years old. I remember Joe Montana of the Kansas City Chiefs going against John Elway, the Denver Broncos, in a yeah. back and forth affair. It was it was truly one of the most spectacular, spectacular games I've ever seen. And yet I thought what I saw from Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen in that particular game was as exquisite. I mean, this is, this is all the Frazier kind of stuff. I mean, this was absolutely exquisite. This was art 
It was beautiful. And yet we're here on a Seahawk podcast. We have a lot of Seahawk fans like, okay, I don't care about any of that playoff games. How does this actually impact the Seahawks? I'll tell you how it impacts the Seahawks. It says, for one, you better damn well have really good quarterback play, of which the Seahawks have a terrific quarterback, obviously, in Russell Wilson. Number two, you had better have difference makers along the defensive line. And I think that's something that you and I are going to be discussing as we move forward all throughout this offseason. The Seahawks do have good defensive linemen do they have great defensive linemen do they have jeffrey simmons kind of guys that can absolutely impact the game um you know those those type of players who can just change aaron donald types who can just change the game um you know that is going to be something we're going to discuss as we go forward and can you make the little plays and i say little plays in the air quotes can you make the little plays and that's one of the things that we i think we have to see is we we saw the nfc or, uh, you know, n- number one seed Green Bay Packers lose a home game because their special teams wasn't good enough. Is that something that Seattle feels good enough about their current special teams? To me, that is one of the things that's really a takeaway here is that the, the Seahawks are very much a contender in the NFC, despite the fact that they were not playing in, in you know, in, in this divisional round. The, the fact that you have two NFC West divisional teams playing for the opportunity to play in the Super Bowl just confirms that the Seahawks are very much a contender in the NFC. And then, oh, by the way, there still are very clearly some areas in which the Seahawks need to get better if they want to be competitors in 2022. Yeah, that was my takeaway. When I was sitting watching these games this weekend, of course, I was thinking about what are the Seahawks, their front office, their coaches, their players, what are they thinking about watching these games in regard to what they need to do to get back to playing at this level? And my big takeaway, you know, you look at the two teams that are in the NFC Championship game, the Seahawks could have easily beaten the Rams both times that they played this year. They were ahead in the third quarter, the second matchup in L.A. They were ahead at halftime in the first matchup. Then Russell Wilson got hurt, obviously, in the third quarter. And Geno Smith made the game competitive in the fourth quarter. I mean, it's not like the Seahawks didn't play them tough. They had them on the ropes both times. They just weren't able to get enough points on the board. And then the 49ers, they swept them. They went 3-3 three and three in the NFC West, the best division in the NFL. I don't feel like the Seahawks are really that far off from getting back to where they can compete against these teams. In fact, I would make the argument that if the Seahawks would have been in the playoffs, they would have had as good of a chance as the 49ers to make this type of a run the way they were playing the last month of the season. Obviously, it was way too little too late for them to do that. But the team itself looks like it could quickly get right back into contention. They got to deal with the three other juggernauts in their division, but this team could be very good. But I do look at the pass rush. There's not enough consistency there. Pete Carroll talked about it at the end of the season. That is an area the Seahawks absolutely have to address. It's been a problem for several years running, finding consistency up there. There are some good free agent pass rushers that could be available for them to upgrade that group, but they've got to get their pass rush going. That was a trend this past weekend in playoffs in general for the teams that were successful getting after the quarterback really helped. And then elite quarterback play. I think this is another reason why the Russell Wilson trade rumors, if you're the Seahawks, I don't think they're entertaining it at this point anyway, but look at the market. I mean, maybe one of the better quarterbacks that might be available is Jimmy Garoppolo. And I know he's going to be playing the NFC championship game, but he made some huge mistakes in Saturday's game against the Packers that 
probably should have been game killers, and yet the defense and special teams kept the 49ers in the game. There's just not a good market for quarterbacks available if you're going to be trying to replace somebody like Russell Wilson. You go back into 2022, and you run it back with number three under center again because you need elite quarterback play to be able to advance deep into the playoffs. You might be able to win one game in a defensive slugfest, but you better have quality quarterback play if you want to make it deep in 2021. This is not 2000 where you can go to the Super Bowl with Trent Dilfer and a number one ranked defense. I just don't think in today's game that it's easy to be able to do that. In fact, I think it's impossible. The quarterbacks that are in this league now, with the way the rules have changed, you need elite quarterback play. The Seahawks can have that if Russell Wilson returns to form and he really shines in his second year in Shane Waldron's system. The special teams have been great other than Jason Myers. He's going to have to figure things out this next year and play like he did in 2020. If they can get that with Michael Dixon and all their other good special teams players, they have the special teams unit to be able to win games in the postseason. So it doesn't feel like they're that far off. At the same time, you can see the clear deficiencies that were on this roster this year that kept them from winning games that would stop them from having success in the playoffs and have stopped them from having success when they have gotten to the postseason for the last five times that they've been in the playoffs. So there are some clear areas to address. And I think these games showed exactly what they need to be doing. And one thing that they shouldn't be doing, and that is moving Russell Wilson. We're going to continue our postseason awards here in a moment. Transitioning to the trenches, offensive lineman of the year. This might be a bit of a toss-up compared to some of the awards that we've already handed out to this point. It's the new year, so that means New Year's resolutions. If yours is about getting fit or eating healthier, make sure you include Built Bar in your plan. Built Bar is the protein bar that tastes like a candy bar, maybe even better than a candy bar. Trust me, it's delicious. It makes it a lot easier to stick to your resolution because it tastes so good, you'll always want to eat it. You want to eat healthy. Sometimes this time of year it can get really boring. By like week three, you might be thinking, this just is not worth it. Where's the chocolate? The nice thing about Built Bars, you don't have to worry about that problem. They're 100% real chocolate, 130 calories, 4 grams of sugar, 4 net carbs, and 17 grams of protein. You compare that to a candy bar, which usually has around 240 calories, 30 grams of sugar, and dozens of net carbs. There's no comparison. Even if you're not a huge fan of working out, you can at least eat something that tastes good and is good for you. That way, when you enjoy a delicious Built Bar, you can almost count it as a workout. And there are so many delicious flavors. Coconut almond, my personal favorite, peanut butter brownie, cookies and cream, salted caramel, and many more. Built is always coming out with new limited time flavors. So make sure to check out Built.com often to see what's new. Go to Built.com and use the promo code LOCKED15 and you'll get 15% off your order. That's LOCKED15 at Built.com for 15% off your order. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, Monday edition. I'm your host, Corbin Smith, joined as always by Rob Rang. Thanks for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. we got a big show coming up, Super Bowl week. Peacock and Williamson NFL show is going to be on the road to L.A. for Super Bowl week. Follow the Peacock and Williamson NFL show today to get the most comprehensive coverage of the big game. It's free. And it's available on all platforms. Continuing our postseason awards, we've looked at Rookie of the Year, Comeback Player of the Year, Offensive and Defensive Player of the Year, MVP. It's time to get to the real important players, though, Rob, the offensive linemen in the trenches. And admittedly, this was kind of a difficult award for me to select one player for because 
every single starter for the Seahawks had a roller coaster season up front. I don't think you can look at that group, in particular the center position where they had two different starters for about half the season apiece. I don't think you can look at this group and say, you know what, there's one lineman that really was consistent and played at a high level from week one to week 18. There were a lot of bumps and uh, bruises along the way for all of these players. And you had some guys that did really well for a few weeks. Then they have a couple of games they really struggled. I thought that made selecting this award somewhat challenging because there wasn't a true front runner. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I don't think that, that anybody along Seattle's offensive line truly was, you know, played at an all pro level. I, I think that if you if this was a an award that we grade purely on consistency, I think you could make an argument for Gabe Jackson. And and, and, and let's just kind of tip a cap to Gabe Jackson. Obviously, as a free agent, Seattle was able to bring him in. And uh, you know, kudos to Jackson, kudos to John Schneider for bringing him in. Um, you know, but at the same time, that, that's not ha- really how you should evaluate offensive linemen. You know, I, I had an 85 Toyota pickup back in the day, my very first car of my life. It was a really fun little truck to drive around. The brakes were terrible. The radio was awesome because I was in high school. That's what I cared about. I wanted to be able to bump a little bit. I wanted to be able to have a little bit of sound. And that's the thing is like, if, if the best thing about your car is the audio, then you probably have a bad car. The most important position along the offensive line to transition to Seahawks football, we all know is the left tackle position. So if I want to grade somebody on just who is the most consistent then I think that Gabe Jackson would get that award, just like my old radio back in the day with the, you know, the, the speakers I had in the back were, were pretty solid. But the most important thing is, can you actually stop your car when you need to? We need to have brakes. We need to have tires. Then you need to have somebody who's reliable at the most important position. And that, to me, still would argue that Dwayne Brown, even though he did have those ups and downs, as we just talked about, he played the most critical position. He played his best football down the stretch. That, to me, if you had to ask me who is my offensive lineman of the year, I'm not so sure that I would throw a parade for Dwayne Brown, but I do think that he was the most important offensive lineman for the Seahawks. And that, of course, is the crux of the award that we're talking about here. And I think Brown personally, if we tried to award him this based on some of the responses that he gave a couple of press conferences this season, I don't think that he would necessarily be super excited about getting that award because he was up front with us a couple of times that he did not think he was playing to his standards. And in the first half, he absolutely did not. He gave up seven sacks in his first nine games. He was among the league leaders in that category. That is not the Dwayne Brown that we are used to seeing. And there were certainly some factors away from him that impacted the way that he was playing most notably the center position I you constantly saw him look over towards Kyle Fuller in disgust and and there were times where Russell Wilson or Geno Smith put themselves in a tough spot where the blocking wasn't necessarily bad but they ended up putting themselves in a position where the player that Dwayne Brown was blocking could get the sack and we saw that time and time again. He still got overpowered on several instances, though. Just did not look like his typical self. So you had some people saying, well, it's age. He's 36. Father time is finally catching up with him. And then he had others that were saying, well, he didn't do anything in training camp because he was holding in wanting a new contract and he's paying for it. Maybe that was part of the issue. Maybe it was a combination of both. Whatever the case, 
I can't give him this award, though, because I can't overlook how poorly he played in the first half. I thought he took a 180 the last eight games and was fantastic. He only gave up one sack in those eight games. And I'll be honest, that one sack, the pro football focus charged to him, I would be kind of inclined to charge that to Russell Wilson. I don't know that he necessarily gave up any sacks in those last eight games. He was outstanding. That looked like the Dwayne Brown we saw for the last several years in Seattle. And so you can look at that and say he's got plenty of football left, and I wouldn't disagree with that. Maybe he is one of the free agents they prioritize to bring back because he did show that he could still play, and he bounced back from that rough first half. But I just can't give him this award when half the season he played as, in my opinion, a bottom 15 starting tackle in the NFL. That's just not what we're accustomed to seeing. Gabe Jackson would probably be my pick just because of the consistency standpoint. He did give up almost 40 pressures. So again, every single one of these starting offensive linemen, you can nitpick. There are little things you can look at like, ooh, that's not a good stat. For him, it was a number of pressures, but he didn't give up very many sacks this year. I thought he did better in the run game, particularly in the second half, than what I anticipated he would. Because to me, he's always been better in pass protection than run blocking. But I thought he did a nice job opening up holes for a shot penny down the stretch. And I thought his run blocking overall was pretty solid this year. I thought it was a pretty good addition for them. Not a great year by his standards, but in terms of consistency, I thought he was the most consistent player on this offensive line. And he played all but one game. He was one of the healthier guys on this line. I want to give one other player a shout out. I'm not giving him the award again. Gabe Jackson's my offensive lineman of the year, but we, we looked at that discrepancy for Dwayne Brown first and second half. I truly believe the center position was a big part of that. Ethan Posick, from an individual standpoint, is not the best offensive lineman on the Seahawks roster. He does not deserve this award. He struggled his first couple games coming back into the lineup. He was great down the stretch, best four or five game stretch of his career to close out this season, especially in pass protection. But the reason I want to cite him when we're talking about this award If you want to make the argument for Dwayne Brown, you got to give some credit to Ethan Posick because as soon as he came back in the lineup, it just seemed like Dwayne Brown flipped a switch. And we no longer saw him turning and looking at his center in disgust after giving up a sack. The communication issues with Kyle Fuller, those were real. That was a real problem for the whole line, including Dwayne Brown. So I wanted to just give a shout out to Ethan Posick because I think he's not offensive lineman of the year, but I think he at least deserves a mention here because I think he had a very positive impact on the entire group and including undrafted rookie Jake Curham starting the last five games. Those communication woes they had early in the year disappeared and not surprisingly, the pass protection was better and the run blocking was much better just with that uh, substitution bringing Ethan Posick back into the lineup. Yeah, I have to agree with you. I mean, I w- without trying to knock Kyle Fuller uh, too much, I, I do think that the center position definitely was was played at a more consistent level with Ethan Postick on the field. And I love that you just mentioned Jake Curran. I mean, I, I don't want to give an undrafted free agent right tackle too much credit. But at the same time, I mean, when he started to play pretty good football at his more natural and more comfortable position at the right tackle position, uh, you know, really Seattle's offense started to kind of hit all cylinders. Now, again, there's a lot of things that you can equate to that. You, you can mention Ethan Postick. You can mention the, uh, you know, the, the return to health from Russell Wilson, the, the sudden emergence or reemergence maybe from Rashad Penny. But say what you will, when Jake Curran took over at that right tackle position maybe brandon shell a healthy brandon shell would have been able to do the same but it doesn't matter 
where the proof is in the pudding. Jake Curran actually had a, you know, had a significant impact on this team as well. So if we're going to give kind of a shout out, then let's give a little bit of a shout out to the young uh, right tackle as well. Yeah, I think there's a number of players you could do that with that maybe didn't have great all-around years or they had inconsistent play, but deserve some props. I think Posick and Curran are both players that qualify for that. But Jackson, to me, was the most consistent. I think if you want to look at who had the best stretch of play for an extended period of time, then Dwayne Brown probably gets that. The second half, he was really on point, looked like the all-pro caliber player that we've grown to know and love during his time in Houston and Seattle. He was playing at the level we expect from him. Every Monday moving forward, we're going to be dishing out a new segment starting today. Really excited to dive into a number of different roster-related topics as we get rolling with this 2022 offseason. Going to have a pretty controversial topic here for our first Makeover Monday that we'll be getting started here in a moment. This is Corbett Smith with an incredible app everyone who buys gas needs to know about. Get upside. My listeners are earning cash back for every gallon of gas every time they fill up. Just download the free GetUpside app in the App Store or Google Play right now and use the promo code TOUCHDOWN for $0.25 cents per gallon or more on your first fill up. That's automatic cash back. Don't pay full price of the pump anymore. Get cash back using GetUpside. Just download the app for free and use the promo code TOUCHDOWN for $0.25 cents per gallon or more on your first tank. Some people who drive a lot are making as much as two to $300 a year in cash back, and there's no catch. The cash back gets added right to your account, to your bank account, PayPal, and e-gift card for Amazon and other brands. There's a number of options to cash out. Just download the free GetUpside app and use the promo code TOUCHDOWN to get 25 cents per gallon or more cash back on your first tank. You're listening to Locked On Seahawks podcast, Monday edition. I'm your host, Corbin Smith, joined as always by Rob Rang. Thanks for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. Every offseason, Rob, you and I, we, we discuss this away from our recordings. What's a way that we can spice up the show, do something a little bit different? And with the Seahawks coming off a disappointing season, we're used to talking about playoffs this time of year. We didn't get to do that. 7-10 and 10 finish, last place in the NFC West. The Seahawks clearly have the talent to get back into the playoff hunt next year, but this is a roster that's going to need a little bit of a facelift, especially being in the toughest division in the NFC West. So without further ado, we're going to launch today a series we're going to be doing every Monday. It's Makeover Monday. We're going to be looking at a specific roster-related topic every Monday on the show. It could be looking at players that might be cut candidates, looking at potential trades, position groups that need upgraded, free agent groups. There are a number of different topics that we're going to be touching on on these Mondays. And we're going to start off with a topic that's going to make a lot of our listeners uncomfortable. And I think you and I, Rob, out of respect for the player, it might be an uncomfortable topic to talk about. But the NFL is a business. And the Seahawks, I think the toughest decision that they've got facing them, a lot of people would say, oh, the future of Russell Wilson. I don't think that there's as much doubt about that as what is being circulated in the media right now. Maybe that changes in the next few weeks. But to me, it's another superstar on this roster that's going to be in Canton, that's going to have a gold jacket, going to be going into his 11th season, same draft class as Russell Wilson. What does the future hold for Bobby Wagner? And we've touched on this a little bit up to this point. We haven't had a chance to really dive in, and I'm sure we'll have other times we'll be talking about this topic because it's not going away. Wagner is going to have a cap hit of $20.35 million in 2022. 
that is a ton of money for a non-quarterback, particularly a player that's going to be 32 this summer and is showing some signs of declining athleticism, has been for the last couple of years. I just don't know that there's any way that Bobby Wagner plays for the Seahawks next season at his current price tag. Still a great player, but I'm skeptical that that happens. No, I 100% agree with you. And, and that's why I would argue that this is not a controversial topic. A $20.35 million, I, I just don't know that there are very many defensive players. And I don't know there's any linebacker uh, in, in today's NFL who warrants that type of pay. Um, I, I, I just struggle with that. Now, I certainly understand and respect what Bobby Wagner has done for the Seahawks in the past. But moving forward with the way, to me, the, 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 the recent divisional playoffs just proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that if you are not a guy who can get pressure on the quarterback, if you are not a guy in the secondary who is going to be able to not only create big plays, but possibly create points in terms of interceptions, return for touchdowns and things like that, then I don't know how you justify that kind of pay. Bobby Wagner, as you said, Corbin, I absolutely believe is a future Hall of Famer. And I think that his legacy in Seattle is as strong as is any that we have ever seen, perhaps including the late great Cortez Kennedy, the, the best Seahawks defensive player that I've ever seen throughout the entire fruition of his NFL career. But at the same time, at that price point, you know, as you said, we, we talk about how to spice up the show. And we talked about Monday makeover. I, I thought about arguing that maybe you should come in with a little bit of blush and mascara. But if, if we're actually going to talk about how you want to make the Seahawks better, how you want to make the Seahawks teams flashier, then I think that you have to either convince Bobby Wagner that he is going to have to pay for less or he's going to have to play elsewhere because I just don't see this team taking that next step and allocating that amount of money to a player who was statistically good, but not necessarily impactfully as good as the statistics would suggest. Yeah. And I think that that's where I'm going to dive in right now, because we've had this discussion the last couple of years this is not a new development necessarily where there have been some question marks about Bobby Wagner's play declining. And this is to be expected. I mean, he's now played in the NFL 10 years, and this is a guy that's been very durable. He missed the last couple of games of the year this year. But I mean, he has been very healthy. He's been on the field. He's got a lot of wear and tear on his body. He's played a lot of NFL games, not just regular season, but all the playoff games that he has played in since getting drafted in 2012. And so it's expected you're going to see decline. He clearly cannot move like he did even two years ago. And I thought a couple of years ago, you were already starting to see some signs that his ability to run sideline to sideline and drop back in coverage, he just was not moving as fluidly then as what he was even a year or two earlier than that. He is experiencing expected decline in that regard. But this year it felt even more stark. And I think he's been able to offset some of that with his football intelligence. You see him make a lot of plays, particularly against the run game, where his high football IQ comes into play. He's not going to get fooled. He reads his blocks to figure out where the football is going. He was aided by the play of guys like Al Woods up front, keeping him free. So for that reason, he was able to get 170 tackles. That is a, that is an aspect of his game that 
I think Bobby Wagner could be 70 years old. And he could still get 100 tackles. He's that kind of a guy. He knows how to get to the football, and he knows how to finish up plays. But when you're talking about pass coverage and blitzing and getting tackles in the backfield, the, the impact plays, as you mentioned, he only had three tackles for a loss this year. Jordan Brooks had 10. That was an eye-opening statistic to me because that says, yes, Bobby Wagner's getting a lot of tackles, but he's not making those plays up around the line of scrimmage that he has for most of his career. And you watch the film, he wasn't. Those plays just very few and far between this year. A lot more tackles that were four, five, six yards downfield and a lot of tackles after the catch because as he has struggled with the last couple of years, a lot of issues with quick dump-off passes of running backs, tight ends, receivers, only saw a few pass breakups this year, not getting his hands in the football as much, in part because he just doesn't move as well. And that's where my issue lies. I still think Bobby Wagner can be a very productive NFL linebacker for a couple more years, but his presence creates some schematic limitations for the Seahawks, especially if you're going to have a new coordinator coming in that maybe wants to run more cover one with man coverage underneath. I don't know at this point that I can trust Bobby Wagner running very much man coverage at middle linebacker. Not that he is a bad athlete, but in today's game where teams are spreading teams out and they want to throw the ball a bunch, I just don't know at this stage of his career that you can necessarily trust him to do that. He's just He becomes a liability in that sense. So that's where my concern lies. I think if you can get his cap hit down, even $5 million, if it was like $15 million cap hit, he was still a second-team All-Pro this year. He's still a very solid linebacker. You'd like to see him finish his career or come close to finishing his career here. Still a very good player. He's not a $20.35 million cap hit player, though, not even close. And like you said, I don't know that any linebacker in today's game is worth that kind of money, especially one that's in decline, still good, but he is slowly getting worse each year, as you would expect. So to me, this boils down to, is Bobby Wagner going to be willing to restructure his deal? Or maybe they extend his contract to try to lower the cap. And I mean, there are a number of options that are on the table, but the Seahawks are going to have to cut that cap hit number. Again, I don't see any way that he is in a Seahawks uniform with that current cap hit next season. The Seahawks have plenty of cap space, but could you imagine how much they would open up? I mean, if you cut him, it creates 16 million in instant cap space. I'm not necessarily advocating for that, but if he's not willing to take a pay cut, then you absolutely have to make that move. And then maybe you hope you can re-sign him for less. There are a lot of moving parts, a lot of dominoes here, but Again, I think a lot of fans are going to look at this as controversial. I agree with you that it isn't really. This is a discussion for a 7-10 and 10 team that absolutely needs to be had right now. Well, and it breaks your heart again, just like the it does. Yeah, but it's a, a business, Rob. Ago. I mean, you and I both know exactly. that exactly. You know, it's like a, a conversation a year ago about KJ Wright, but the fact that Seattle was able to cut KJ Wright and let him just kind of, you know, sit there and throughout, you know, free agency and no one signed him. John Schneider basically saying, We were surprised no one signed him, and yet he still remained out there. Seattle could have brought him back and didn't. I think just shows how cold-hearted this business is, you know. And and I think that John Schneider is a having known him and had conversations with him, he is a you know a, a good human being, at least in my perspective. At the same time, I think that he recognizes as as just as every other NFL general manager out there, what you just said, Corbin. This is a business. You got to win. 
and $20.35 million this next season. Just to put that in perspective, there's a lot of Seahawks fans out there, Corbin, who have said, oh, just cut Jamal Adams. Jamal Adams is going to make less next year than half of what that that Bobby Wagner is allocated in Seattle's current uh, you know salary structure for the 2022 season his his pay Jamal Adams does go up in 2023 but you're talking about a very young player in Jamal Adams and, and a relatively older player in Bobby Wagner so again to me what this all comes down to is the Seahawks absolutely cannot it is not a financial you know uh, is not responsible, at least financial possibility that Seattle is going to be able to bring Bobby Wagner back at that current price. Now, as you said, could he restructure his deal? I think he certainly could. It was one of the things that he talked about in his end of the season press conference, the fact that he was taking some accounting classes. Bobby Wagner, of course, is, you know, like uh, Richard Sherman, that he basically represents himself um, you know, a, as an agent. So that's going to be some interesting conversations. And he was adamant that he has not said that he will entertain the idea uh, of changing his contract. He does believe that he is worth that money. But if he wants to stay a member of the Seattle Seahawks, I, I think that he is going to have to, uh, you know, just see a little bit of a reality. I cannot imagine a scenario in which the Seahawks bring him back at that price, at least not if they want to win a Super Bowl next year rather than just doing a little bit of a fan farewell kind of a deal in 2022 season. Yeah, and I think where this is heading, I know what Wagner has said publicly. I do think that there is going to be a reality that sets in. Bobby Wagner is a very smart guy. He's very business savvy. He knows how this business works. He has seen teammates come and go. K.J. Wright last year, Richard Sherman, Earl Thomas, you name it. He has seen a bunch of stars leave when the Seahawks decided to move on from them, and he's aware that he could be next. I think he wants to be here. I think the Seahawks want him back. I don't view this quite the same as K.J. Wright last year where they just let him go in free agency, and then even when he was still available midway through training camp, they said not to bring him in. They had their contingency plan already ready to go. They were ready for Jordan Brooks and Daryl Taylor to be the guys. Even though Brooks was fantastic this year, I'm not sure the Seahawks are fully comfortable with the idea of Cody Barton being their Mike linebacker next year. But at the price tag that Bobby Wagner set to be paid, suddenly Cody Barton looks like he's a bit more favorable because it's a much, much cheaper option. So I think where this is going, and we got a long offseason to figure out what ultimately happens, but I expect there's going to be some type, some type of deal that's struck between the two sides, whether it's an extension of an, a year added on to try to lower that cap hit or maybe turning some of his money into a signing bonus to try to lower the cap hit for this year. I expect there to be something done that isn't going to be disrespectful to Bobby Wagner, but it's going to help the Seahawks get a little bit of financial relief. I don't think this is a better football team without him next year, but it's not going to be a better team with him on the roster at this price point. I think John Schneider knows that. I think Bobby Wagner is going to figure that out too. And he wants to be here. The Seahawks want him. I think they'll find a way to make this work, but it's not going to be for $20.35 million cap hit. No, I, I would I would be shocked if that is what actually happens here. I, I think that the Seahawks have just basically been proven that this is a team that can contend right now, but they've got to allocate their funds a little bit differently. Um, you know, I think that uh, what we just saw in the division round of playoffs, again, just emboldens them 
that this is the time to make bold moves. And at, at that price point, I, I think that, that Bobby Wagner is not the bold move that the Seahawks need to make if they truly want to compete in 2022, as sad as it makes me to say that. Move some of that money that you're set to pay Bobby Wagner. If you're going to keep him around, move some of that money to the trenches, whether that's on the offensive line or the defensive line, getting pass rushers. They need to start reallocating some of their funds. Some of that money opened up for guys like Quandre Diggs, too. I still think it's imperative you re-sign him. In this defense, at the state of his career, Wagner is still important, but he's not as important as that financial figure stands out. And I think it is a deterrent to the roster, to the, to the roster building if they have that massive cap hit there next year. So they've got to figure it out, the player and the team. And if they can't, then I could see 54 wearing another uniform next season. And again, that's the reality. It stinks to talk about it, but you have to discuss this now. If you're the Seahawks, you want to get back into contention, moving on from him or getting a lower price point to keep him. You've got to figure out which one of those you're going to do. And if he's not going to stay for less, then unfortunately that could mean playing elsewhere. We'll see what happens. It's one of the big storylines for the Seahawks going into what could be a very turbulent offseason as they try to get their footing back towards contention in 2022. Thanks as always for making Locked on Seahawks your first listen five days a week. Now make your second listen Locked on Bets, your daily one-stop shop for all your gambling needs. Locked on Bets is hosted by your boy Q with expert analysis and insight from Lee Sterling. You can follow me on Twitter at Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Rob at Rob Rang. Make sure to check out Locked on Seahawks. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and of course on YouTube as well. Make sure to check it out five days a week and it's free to download and subscribe. Coming up on our Tuesday show, we're going to continue our postseason awards with the biggest surprise. It could be a player. It could be a development with the Seahawks team. But we're going to look at the biggest surprises from the 2021 season. And we're also going to be diving into our first position group in review. We're going to be talking quarterbacks, most important position in the sport, where the Seahawks stand going into this offseason after a pretty tough 2021 campaign. Thanks, as always, for listening. Enjoy the rest of your Monday. Go Hawks.